key to retailing success can't be found in any store aisle. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. The secret weapon for retailers today is data science. It used to be called analytics, and before that, statistics or operations research. But it's more than a relabeling of an old concept. The modern-day discipline of data science is an outgrowth of the era of big data, and it's crucial to the success of omnichannel retailing. Just look at what Amazon is doing with data today, using it to mine information about the consumer that was previously impossible to acquire. Today, we're talking about the phenomenon of data science and retailing with Ken Sanford, U.S. Lead Analytics Architect with Data IQ. He'll explain the significance of Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods and why data is absolutely essential to the success of that venture. We'll learn how data drives sales and sales drives data. We'll see what it takes to become a data-first organization. We'll examine the problem of finding enough human experts to make the system work, and we'll even discuss smart refrigerators. So here is my conversation with Ken Sanford. Ken Sanford, welcome to the show. Welcome, Bob. Thanks for having me. Let's start by defining our terms. What do you mean when you use the phrase data science? Oh, boy. Okay, so data science is sort of still a relatively new term. For a while, it was analytics, and before that, it was probably statistics and operations research. But what data science is now is a little more inclusive of multiple disciplines, which could be statistics, it could be economics, which is, of course, my background, could be operations research. But now data science actually brings into the fold folks that have been trained in classic computer science. And where that begins to sort of take us is that we're now moving towards analytics as being part of the IT process. So it's being cooked into every piece of software that we use as consumers. It's cooked into all the decisions that are made from a B2B perspective. It's actually operationalizing and the math that for a long time was solely driving insights for companies. And what role has it played in the growth of Amazon to this point? Well, Amazon is the classic data science company. It may be one of the first. And by data science, let's actually start by thinking about uh, this term data product. So a data product can be an enriched data set. It might be an analytic service. It might even be some sort of pipeline, could be a dashboard. Many companies that have focused on being data companies have realized that the value is in what kind of data that they build, not necessarily in what their traditionally viewed source of revenue happens to be. So classic sort of current example is Facebook, right? So Facebook doesn't really sell a product. It just makes experiences, and those experiences create data, and from those data, they create value. Amazon can be seen in a very similar way. 
They created a marketplace that had fairly low margin, but what they lacked in margin, they decided to make up for in quantity. And, and the way that they've made up for that in high quantity is they figured out excellent products to recommend together. They figured out logistical inefficiencies to, to remove. They've expanded the market basket of their customers. And so in essence, they worry that the act of selling things for Amazon is much more of a, a way to create data. Uh, in fact, I'm now calling this companies that see the value, almost think of their actions, their main source of being as creating data byproducts. And what do you do with data byproduct? Hopefully you, you enrich it and create additional value. But again, you, you yourself pose the question, what kind of data? Is it customer intelligence data? What is the data we're talking about here? At Amazon, for instance. Is that, is that what you mean? Yeah, specifically from an Amazon perspective. So Amazon, of course, tracks information about your web log traffic, right? They know what's presented on a page. They likely know some information about what types of sites you visited before, but they certainly know what's presented on a page and where you tend to click and where how you tend to convert. And so over time, what you can do is build profiles about the person, both at a demographic level, but also from a spending level or from a market basket personalization level. Uh, over time, you begin to develop a 360-degree view of your customer, and that will you know, ultimately let you ship at right time, offer right products at right time. For Amazon, they, of course, touch so many different parts of our lives that they have a very holistic view of how we spend and what we spend. Now, brick-and-mortar retailers, especially grocery retailers in recent years, have deployed the use of loyalty programs and loyalty cards in order to mine customer information. I guess you might describe that as an extremely primitive version of data science, correct? I wouldn't necessarily call it primitive, uh, though it is funny. I've worked with several retailers that have just introduced loyalty programs within the last couple of years, and certainly the more advanced grocers and brick-and-mortar re retailers did this early on. It provides an excellent source of information. You know, when, how often people bought items, and at the transaction level, what was purchased. Now, that is something that Amazon has really hadn't seen in large-scale from a grocer yet. They, of course, have their fresh business, but it's a fairly small and limited sample. And so now they're actually able to see transaction-level information, the likes that Kroger and Safeway and those kinds of companies have been seeing for some time. Kroger, obviously, with its, they have their own internal marketing analytics group, and, and they've been very successful at building a successful customer loyalty program and, and creating value out of their data. Okay, so how do you think that the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods would actually revolutionize retail through the use of data science? Both parties are going to benefit from this, right? Whole Foods is a premium brand. Amazon is definitely going to take that premium. And Whole Foods' premium brand is interesting. It's the perishable, unbranded, fresh produce that now Amazon's going to be able to sort of attach their Amazon fresh brand too. Uh, so they're, they're going to certainly benefit from it. Whole Foods itself obviously has some inefficiencies in their supply chain that I'm sure Amazon's going to be able to work out. I think one of the most interesting things that will, will occur is this hybridization of the market basket, right? So typically I would go to myself as a consumer, and I'm sure a lot of customers are like this, Whole Foods customers, I'm going to go to Whole Foods for my meat, cheese, bread, and fish, and then I'm going to go online and buy my detergent and deodorant and that kind of thing, right? And so now Whole Foods is going to be, Whole Foods Amazon, or AWF as I'm, as I'm calling it, is going to be able to provide both tied and tile fish to the same consumer, right? And they're going to be able to do it seamlessly. 
So I think the, the sort of crossing over and to create a, a sort of a synthetic market basket is going to be great for the Whole Foods consumer. It's going to be great for Whole Foods because you can start to think about Whole Foods as, as expanding even the, their variety even more. So I see that as a, as a real positive. There's so many places for data to be used. The other perspective that you might have on it is that uh, Whole Foods now becomes a lab, 450 labs throughout the country that Amazon can use to do large-scale A-B testing for types of products and pricing and, and delivery options. And so it gives their data scientists a playground. Yeah, it's still hard to understand, though, where the Whole Foods stores would merge with Amazon's own Amazon Fresh program and the supposedly the actual grocery stores, the brick-and-mortar grocery stores that Amazon was talking about opening prior to this acquisition. I don't know. Maybe they'll pull back from that now. Maybe they'll continue that. But as I, I'm trying to think of what my experience as a consumer would be if I'm shopping there. Would I indeed go online, order some of my durables, and then actually physically go to the store, pick those up, and while I'm there, get the meat and the fish and stuff like that? Or what's it going to look like? As far as the actual customer experience, I anticipate it as being somewhat similar to how, how we behave today, but a bit more AI bent on, on the Whole Foods in-store consumer of, again, meat, cheese, bread, lettuce, and then the appropriate Thai detergent or, or deodorant or Crest toothpaste showing up simultaneously at home. And, and so it's not so much that the, I think that the user experience will change dramatically because I actually like going to the grocery store. I'm a bit of a weird man in that way, right? That I, <laughs> I enjoy hanging out in grocery stores because I like looking at variety. And I, I don't think I'm unlike most Whole Foods shoppers, right? They, they like that. They don't want to get in and out. So I imagine the experience will stay the same. It'll just be the ability to do this synthetic bundling that Amazon will really take advantage of. It could be that they're going to need both, because I'm thinking back to my experiences during the uh, original dot-com boom of around 2000 when Webvan was there. And I found using Webvan, I was spending less on groceries because I was only getting what I felt I needed and looking online and picking stuff according to what was on my computer screen, not being tempted by all those other things if I was physically at the store. So I'm wondering if we're going to run into that same thing. I wonder if the impulse buy will certainly change if the, if the in-store experience goes away. I do think that Amazon and Whole Foods together will offer an alternative to the sort of blue apron that does a little bit better a job at matching up what you currently have in your pantry and refrigerator with what you might actually want, right? And so you can start to think about this. They know what you had for dinner the last two weeks, and when you ate at home, you, they could certainly suggest, based on what they know they have, you have left in your refrigerator or pantry, send you, hey, hey, if I send some skirt steak, he's ready to make bulgogi. But because I know that three weeks ago he used tamarind and a bunch of other stuff. I think I had uh -huh. that right. <laughs> Well, okay, if that's what yeah. you eat. <laughs> um, but then now you, tie, now you tie that in to smart devices and smart appliances, so-called smart refrigerators that are going to tell you when you're out of something and pantries that will automatically or reorder when you're out of something. Do you see that as kind of coming into the Amazon universe too and kind of completing the picture in an even more, I don't want to say invasive way, but maybe that's what I mean. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm sort of in of the mindset, and I think this is true of most folks. You said invasive, so I, I do want to sort of talk about that for just one second, and then I'll talk about smart refrigerators, because I, I really en- did enjoy this most recent episode of Silicon Valley, and the smart refrigerator has now saved them, uh, saved a bit of Pied Piper, so it's, uh, it's quite yeah, funny. Yeah, I, I um, watched it. <laughs> it did crack yeah. me up. So, uh-huh. but, but as far as the invasive thing goes, well, absolutely, companies are seeing us at a micro level that potentially could be used for bad. But I'll tell you what, I think what's nice about this generation now is that we're at the point where as long as you're providing me value for using my data, I don't mind you taking something. It's kind of like walking around New York, right? There's so many people that I don't fear any one person very much. It's sort of like with data, there's so much data, I don't fear privacy invasion too much either. And so I I do think that we're hitting a point where there's so much data that it becomes, and, and there's so much potential for oversight. Of course, now I've got all my you know, every time my credit card swiped, I get to see it on my cell phone. So I, I, I'm able to see things at a much more granular level, and and, and big data has helped that. So I, I do think we're catching a point where the value is exceeding the fear. Back to your other point of the smart refrigerators. Absolutely. While we may never get to the RFID stuff, certainly Amazon's technologies of taking of being able to do image and video capture and image and video recognition will assist in evaluating what's even in your refrigerator. I've seen a couple of these new smart fridges have internal video cameras in them, right? And so you're able to, at the store, ask questions, sort of see what's in there. Now, we're not yet at the point where the RFID tags are, are viable inside the refrigerator, but we probably will get to a point where either the tag works well enough or the image recognition works out well enough that it'll know I put the milk in there on this day. And so based on a reasonable guess, based on my transaction at Whole Foods, I know that my organic milk lasts a month and a half, so it's about done. Yeah, I mean, they're absolutely able to be AI-able food delivery. I just heard for the second time you use the term AI, artificial intelligence, which cannot be another term that's pretty hard to pin down these days. Is this artificial intelligence in the classic sense, and if so, how is it being applied to this whole world? Artificial intelligence is really nothing but putting together in a careful and curated way a bunch of predictive models. That that if this thing happens, then I'm going to predict with this, and if this other thing happens, I'll predict with that. And we can, of course, make it more complicated, but uh, when I think about what AI is, it's basically just creating a bunch of business rules that are automatically generated through predictive models and data. And so we're hitting a point where putting predictive models into action is a real thing and actually what's needed, right? And, and I'm fortunate enough to be with a company now when our, that our main mission is to help companies get models into production. Data science has been very good in the last 10 or 15 years at generating insight, right, which is fairly static. And putting it into action is the next step in the process. The way you just described AI working sounds exactly the way that Deep Blue played chess, almost kind of like a brute force approach, knowing so many rules and knowing when to apply them in in the case of a certain given set of circumstances. That's not what AI, I think, originally was envisioned as, but I guess we're comfortable calling that AI today. At least I am. I'm sure that a person from a classic computer science background would argue with me, but I'm a pragmatist and an economist by training, and I see a lot of these great AI applications as really being the combination of a bunch of different predictive models, carefully curated and constantly evolving. And so is this what the retail landscape's going to look like? Is this going, I mean, it sounds like it's just beginning to take hold in retail on a large scale, is that going forward just going to completely consume and transform and revolutionize retailing? 
there are a lot of retailers that have been doing an excellent job at this for some time. It's not so much that the retail industry lags behind other industries at applying data science principles and putting them into practice. It's more that companies, especially big and seasoned companies, struggle with the kinds of organizational change that, it, that is required in order to do this, right? In essence, when you look at the Jet.com and the Walmart sort of situation, right? Walmart, was, they have great people. They were doing great things. Jet had great people doing great things. Jet's just a lot newer, and it's easier for them to innovate and to turn their ship quickly, right? And so what did Walmart do? They said, well, I want to go out and grab this, innov- this innovative group of people. And so and, and the, that's our mechanism of, of shifting. Now, not all companies in the retail space can go out and buy a Jet.com, and instead some of them have to look within and, and modify, right? And so that is actually one of the messages that, that Data IQ your brains is that organizational change. Once you've decided to become a data-driven organization, you often need technology to help you augment the people and the processes that you currently have. And, and so I don't think necessarily that an industry lags behind. It's more that they maybe are the companies lag behind. Some of the biggest companies are some of the slowest movers in analytics. That's not always true. Of course, point to, to Disney and to Ford as being excellent examples and GE. Uh, as excellent examples of big companies that have successfully transformed themselves to data-first organizations. But there's a lot of big ones that are still out there getting some help. You know, the interesting thing to me is that the more we get into AI and machine learning and we let machines take over a lot of things that humans used to do, it seems like we still need humans more than ever, especially highly (laughs) skilled ones. The world of data science needs data scientists. My question is, are there enough of those individuals around to do the job? That's a great point. And everyone's fearful about all the jobs that are being that are being automated away. And as an economist, we've been inventing industries and we've been inventing tools for thousands of years, and, and it seems that we always need humans around to do new and different things. We all know that eventually there is going to be a need, right? And one of the needs as far as data science, of course, is creativity. Computers do a lot of things well. They, what they don't do is, is write code well, and they don't really, they're not creative. And so there will always be a need for the expert eye. I'm sort of of the belief that software is going to make it possible that in, in a handful of years, maybe the valuable degree isn't necessarily computer science and analytics, but instead maybe the valuable degree is fashion design, right? But that has that you know how to use data, right? So it's, it's always going to be context specific, but data is going to be a part of that particular industry. Now that mm-hmm. said, we absolutely do need more data scientists on this planet and many different colleges now, and I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of them, are developing formal master's programs, formal certificate programs to help uh, retrain, recoach folks into this data science and analytics space. There's uh, a handful of dedicated for-profit, basically for-profit education companies that are dedicated to this, and they do a nice job of, of creating 10, 12 week boot camps on data science. There's a number of different ways to uh, alleviate this imbalance uh, of demand. Technology can play a role too. 
there are some products that helps bridge the gap or create uh, opportunities for skill creep. Maybe the statistician that, get, that gets the four-year degree and doesn't, decides not to go any further in school historically could do really nice modeling on fairly small data, but now this technology let him work, do the same, him or her do the same work in a way they know, but just now on a, on a bigger scale and get it into production. And in the same way, can the analyst that is comfortable with ma- manipulating data in Excel now manipulate that data on Hadoop or on Spark and hand that off to a maybe a classically trained data scientist who can build a model and deploy it. So there's ways for technology to help bridge the gap. We started calling this horizontal collaboration versus vertical collaboration. And, and in that, I mean skill sets, right? So it's one thing to have all the same kinds of people working together that just help build products. In this case, I mean data products. But it's really on the vertical dimension. Can I get a data engineer, a statistician, and their manager all working in unison to create output? Uh, because if that's the case, I can increase specialization if I want. If I don't have the resources to have increased specialization, I can allow the technology to, to promote some skill creep, which, again, leads to a good outcome. We are just about out of time, but I've got to ask you this one final question. You are described... <laughs> Maybe you describe yourself as a reformed academic economist. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you know, okay, so I love being an economist. I think it's a great way to think. At some point, I got to where I didn't necessarily just want to uh, write a paper, and, and if I was really successful, have it published in a book that no one had read and, and went on a shelf. And so I eventually said, hey, this data world's pretty cool. And I was lucky enough that uh, the SAS Institute, which makes, still makes great software, found me and pulled me into, into this world of analytics. And since then, I've been able to communicate across all these different academic disciplines as well as all these different industries and have seen the application of a lot of economics principles in the real world and seen how data can transform Uh, not only companies, but people's lives. Well, uh, Dr. Ken Sanford, I want to thank you so much for taking time with us to understand this whole issue of data science and analytics, AI, machine learning as it's applied to the world of retail, and help us to understand what's going to happen when algorithms meet avocados, as you say. Thanks very much for being with us. Bob, thanks so much. That was my conversation with Ken Sanford of Data IQ, talking about how data science is sparking a revolution in retail. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.